Welcome uh, to our new series on uh, songs of victory. So looking at the Psalms and looking at particular Psalms that express victory. Uh, This is going along with what we're going to be studying through the rest of this year, this theme of the victory of God's people. And if you're on God's side, you have won the victory. So um, we're looking at Psalm 20 today, and we're looking at this idea of we rise and stand. When we were in Tasmania, we hired a bus. Uh, Our youth group was so large that we couldn't transport in cars, so we hired a bus and Somehow on one of these days uh, we were sightseeing and Aaron got the seat at the front of the bus and somehow he ended up with a microphone and so it was inevitable that we would sing karaoke for an hour and a half on our, destina- on our way to our destination. So we sang everything. We sang the Backstreet Boys, we sang Taylor Swift, we sang Bonnie Tyler, the Proclaimers, we sang Queen, we sang uh, We Are The Champions and... It's very hard to hear people singing We Are The Champions and not join in yourself. So we were driving through the town of Sorel in Tasmania and everyone on the bus was belting out to um, their lungs capacity. They were belting out, We Are The Champions, We Are The Champions, No Time For Losers Because We Are The Champions. Apparently the bus's windows weren't keeping in the sound very well because I looked next to us and there was a tradie in his ute there and he was tapping his fingers and singing along too. <laughs> and when the light went green, he gave us a thumbs up and he drove on his way. Songs of victory, they're really contagious, aren't they? And they're universal. Everyone likes singing songs of victory. You think of the Olympics. You think of when the athlete who's trained their whole life finally gets their moment in the spotlight, when they win the gold medal, when they're standing before the the stadium and they're on the podium and they get the gold medal around their neck and they get the bunch of flowers to hold as well and their national anthem plays in the background and they stand and they sing victorious. They've represented their country. They are now conquerors of the world in that discipline. Uh, I was privileged to attend my first AFL game last year and what a feeling when the siren sounds when the Brisbane Lions have come back in the fourth quarter and won the victory and the stadium stands up together and the music blares and we all unite in song and sing we are the pride of Brisbane town we wear maroon blue and gold what about um, maybe you remember sports day at school Uh, My sports team in primary school was Eastern. We were blue and we versed the red team, Scottish. And even though most of my friends were on Team Scottish, there was nothing I enjoyed more than after a day of competing and beating them at long jump and discus and whatever other events we faced to stand up at the end and the winning team got to sing their victor's song. And I still remember the words, yabba, 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 rah, rah, rah. Eastern, Eastern, yes we are. (laughs) Very profound words. (laughs) And it brought me so much joy to sing as our rivals sat there in misery and defeat and we'd conquered them that day. Songs capture emotion and victory is one of the strongest emotions that humans can feel. And so we sing songs of victory in the church too. Many of our hymns are songs of victory, songs of conquering. You think of, oh, victory in Jesus, my saviour forever. 
What about encamped uh, upon the hills of light? You Christian soldiers rise, etc., uh, etc. Et Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. You think about no weapon that's fashioned against us will stand. The battle belongs to the Lord. You think about, O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, not miserable and with your tail between your legs, not downcast and discouraged. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Think of, hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy, mild God and sinner reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. Or think about on Zion's glorious summit. The second verse goes, Hear all who suffered sword or flame, for truth or Jesus' lovely name, shout victory now and hail the Lamb and bow before the great I am. Or think about mortals join the mighty chorus which the morning stars begin. Father love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man. Ever singing march we onwards. Victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us sunward in the triumph song of life. Songs of victory, songs of triumph. Much more profound than yabba yabba yabba. <laughs> Here's the point. If you're on the winning team, you want to shout and sing about your victory. You want to stand up and tell people how proud you are to be on the winning team. And as Christians, we need to be confident. We need to be bold. We need the audacity to declare to the world, we have won the victory, not through our efforts, but through our Saviour Jesus Christ, who reigns and will reign forevermore. I'm not pretending that life is hunky-dory. I'm not pretending that we can sing these songs of victory and, and that life will never bring us trials or troubles. But we are victors in the midst of strife, aren't we? We are victorious in spite of the pains, in spite of the troubles, in spite of the difficulties. And so that's what the Psalms present. A story of victory in the middle of pain, in the middle of a difficult life, still triumphantly declaring we are on the winning side when we put our faith and allegiance in Christ. So every Sunday morning in February, we're studying a new psalm, a psalm of victory. Um, in two Sundays' time, Ian's going to be bringing a, a sermon. He's going to be doing a psalm as well, a psalm of victory. We're going to concentrate on this wonderful celebration that we have in the middle of a life of trouble to say yes but we have still overcome we still have the victory assured to us so psalm 20 is what we're at today now psalm 20 is to the best of scholars knowledge and to the best of our commentators ability to discern what this psalm is about psalm 20 seems to be a song that was sung before people went into battle so before you would engage the Philistines in, in warfare or the Ammonites or the Moabites or whoever was out there to battle, you would come together as a city, you'd get the king and the leader of the army and you would all sing this song together, a song of confidence before you go into battle. This isn't a song that you sing after the battle is won. This is a song that you sing before you engage in the battle to remind you that victory is on God's side. So let's go to Psalm 20 and... 
we'll go through it together. Uh, I'll put it up on the screen, but I encourage you to um, read along with us in your Bibles. So Psalm 20 verses 1. It says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. This is the first line. The word may there uh, comes up several times in this psalm. You may have noticed. Um, there are nine petitions to God in this psalm. So it's a, it's a psalm that's directed to God. It's a psalm that is asking that God pay attention and that he answer these requests that are put before him. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So in the day of trouble, that's the setting of this psalm. It's not an easy day. It's not a day of joy. It's not a wedding day or a, um, you know, the day of the birth of your child or, or a, you know, a lovely celebratory day. It's a difficult day, this one. It's a day where there are battles to be fought. It's a day where there is uh, potentially lives on the line, where there are, um, are troubles that are coming our way. So as Christians and as, as you know, people living in Australian culture, we tend to think of days of trouble as anomalies. We think that life should be made up of good days, days that are free of troubles, and that if troubles come along, then that's kind of a, um, that's something really wrong happening in our life. That's, that's a real misstep that our life is taking. We have to continually remind ourselves, if you're a Christian, days of trouble are part of it. Days of trouble are not an anomaly. They are going to be regular. They are going to be consistent throughout your life. Jesus didn't just suggest this, he promised it. He promised you that in this world you will have trouble, John 16 verse 33. Um, you remember when Paul and Barnabas went through Asia Minor and they went from town to town encouraging the brethren and they told them this, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They didn't go from city to city telling the Christians going to be hunky-dory from now on. Today is going to be a good day. Tomorrow is going to be a good day right until we reach that eternal goal. No, they said tribulations are coming. Through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. But in the day of trouble, here's what we have to look forward to. Here's the, the um, consolation. Here's the comfort that you have during your day of trouble. You serve a God who listens. You serve a God who always will listen to your distress and discomfort. Look at um, Exodus with me. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Actually, Exodus 2. Exodus 2 and we'll read verses 23 to 25. You remember the Israelites here are in Egypt under a heavy heavy burden of slavery. It says in Exodus 2:23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry of rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew or God was aware. Look also at Genesis 35 with me. Genesis 35. This is looking at the life of Jacob. And Jacob reflecting on his experience with his God. In Genesis 35 verse 3. 
Now let's go verse 2 and 3. It says, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I go. Days of trouble are not an anomaly, but something that you can guarantee on if you are faithful to God, if you are living day by day, putting your faith and trust and allegiance with him, is that God is with you on those days of trouble and that he hears you. He listens always. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name of the God of Jacob, that just is another way of referring to God. His name and his identity are one. The word protect um, literally means to lift up on high. The New American Standard renders this the best in terms of translating it. It means to, to lift someone on high, put them on a mountain or put them in a tower or something like that. So in the ancient world, um, if you had the high ground in battle, the high ground was the winning place. As long as you're up on the hill, it's very hard for other people to conquer you. And, and this is the request that is put forward to God. He says in, in verse 2 there, May he send, he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. So the sanctuary and Zion are references to Jerusalem and specifically to the temple or the tabernacle. So it's saying even though God is in the temple, he comes out of the temple to help us to fight our battles, doesn't he? We don't serve a God who's limited to this building. We don't serve a God who's only present on Sunday mornings, evenings and Wednesday nights when we meet here. We serve a God who follows us into the week, who is there present with us in our day of trouble, day by day, in our workplaces, in our families, in our interpersonal relationships that we have. Our God extends beyond this location and comes into our lives to care about the battles that we face. It says in verse 3, May he remember all your offerings and regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. Salah. So one of the important things for us to consider when we think of um, pleading to God and, and coming to God and, and putting our requests before him is that God doesn't forget your dedication. God isn't oblivious to the time and the effort that you've put into him. God isn't um, ignorant when it comes to the hours that you've spent coming and worshipping with the saints, coming and singing songs and glorifying him, the, the hours that you've spent listening to sermons and lessons and Bible classes and learning more about him. And this prayer is saying, God, don't forget that I have tried to be loyal to you. I have, I have tried to give my time and my energy to serving you and worshipping you. Um, the word salah at the end there, um, we're not quite sure what it means. You don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, it's, it's a pretty ambiguous term. A lot of people have different ideas as to what it might mean. Probably in the Hebrew it means something like up. So some people think it means stop the psalm there and look up to God and have a moment of, of silent reflection as you consider him. Other people think maybe it's a musical term. Maybe it means you know, sing up, maybe sing louder or maybe it means put the note up one or, or take it up an octave or up in some way. Um, we don't really know what it means but it's a good principle when you see the word salah to 
look up to God and to uh, think of him for a moment. He says there in verse 4, May he grant you your heart's desires. Isn't this a bit of a strange thing? Is God really meant to be granting our heart's desires? Doesn't Jeremiah say that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked? Why is God giving us the desires of our hearts? Or why are we praying to God that he gives us the desires of our hearts? Doesn't um, God say in the days of Noah that the thoughts and intents of the heart of men were evil continuously? Doesn't Jesus say that out of the heart comes sexual immorality and evil thoughts and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and anger and slander and pride and foolishness? Are we really praying that God will give us the desires of our hearts if those are the desires that are in our hearts? The Bible talks about different kinds of hearts. It talks about hearts of stone, it talks about hearts of wickedness and it talks about transformed hearts. Turn with me to um, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. When David, whose heart was filled with adultery and his actions followed on from that, when David recognised... His evil heart, he says in Psalm 51 and verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit from within me. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36 with me. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel also has something to say about hearts that are changed. In Ezekiel's day, he leveled to the Israelites there. He said that they had hearts of stone, the hearts weren't moving. Their hearts weren't moldable. But he does promise this for the future. He says in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that a wonderful thing, that a heart of stone can be replaced with a heart of flesh? And then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and see Ezekiel's message coming through. Sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That evil heart, that heart of stone or that heart of evil desires can be replaced with a heart that is set on God's purposes and God's glory. And a heart that is set on God's glory, may the desires of that heart be granted to us. With a new heart, a heart that's set on God, we can pray that God will grant us the desires of our heart since our heart is set on his purposes. He says, and fulfill all your plans. In verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Shout for joy, but the salvation hasn't come yet. They're just about to go out to battle. How can they be shouting for joy already? He says, in the name of our God, set up our banners. After the battle was done, the king and his victorious army would return to the city and they would set up banners. They would have all of the, the king's banners out to celebrate the victory. And they're saying, let's do this already. We haven't even gone out and fought yet, but we're going to set up our celebration. We're going to set up the party because we know what the outcome is going to be. 
And Christians, that's our response too. We have victory in Christ. We can set up the banners right now because we know what's coming. We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We know that we shall be with the Lord forever and ever. We know that for those who are faithful, God has promised we will be in fellowship with him forevermore in a place where God will wipe away every tear. Let's start setting up banners to prepare for that place that we wait for. You notice in this verse, this is where it changes from may God do something to may we do something. So because God is doing all of these things, this is our response. Our response is to have joy, to celebrate. The word rejoice is used extensively by Paul, especially in his letter to the church at Philippi. And some Bible translations render it celebrate. And it's not a bad translation. That's a pretty fair rendering of what the original Greek word meant. Is your life a life of celebration for what God has done for you? People see you and say, oh, that miserable Christian, just complaining about sin, miserable about the way that the world is going, miserable about not being able to engage in anything fun in their life, just going to church, living a boring, simple, miserable life. That's not the life of celebration. That's not the life of rejoicing. We need to make sure that we are showing this world that we have the victory, that we are rejoicing. May we shout um, and sing over the salvation that God has given us. The word salvation here can also mean victory, and it's translated victory, I think, in the New American Standard and the uh, New International Version. In Psalm 20 and verse 6, Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. This is the confident part of the psalm. At the beginning, we had requests. Now we have the confident assertions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Those are statements of incredible confidence for people who are about to go out and risk their lives in battle. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And look at how David applied this on the battlefield. First Samuel 17, we'll read verses 45 to 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. If only we could have the same confidence when approaching the fights and the challenges and the trials in our life. If only I could have the confidence of David to say, with God's strength and with his help, I know that we will conquer. I know that no weapon that's fashioned against us will stand. The battle does belong to the Lord. 
He says in verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you think people still trust in horses and chariots? Maybe not horses and chariots, but do you think people still trust in military? Do you know how much the world spent on military budgets in 2018? It was $1.8 trillion in chariots and horses. Just to put that in perspective, if we wanted to feed all of the hungry people in the world, and there are about 840 million hungry people in the world at the moment, if we wanted to feed all of those people this year, it would cost $30 billion. That's about the cost of it. That's a 60th of what we spend on military and might. I'm not trying to launch a political platform here. I'm not trying to run for office or anything. But do you think we still trust in horses and chariots? Do you think $1.8 trillion that the world spends on its bombs, and its tanks and its guns is saying where their trust really lies? So what are the horses and chariots of your life? It's easy to blame the US government and the Russian government and this and that, saying that they trust in horses and chariots. Do we have horses and chariots that we put our trust in? Can it be said of us that maybe we trust in our wealth and our bank statement? Can it be said of us that maybe we trust in our job and our healthy career? Can it be said of us that we trust in our social status? As long as I have my social status, I'll, everything will be okay. As long as I have my followers and friends on social media, everything will be okay. As long as I have my body image well, everything will be okay. What are the chariots and horses in your life that you put your trust in instead of putting your trust in the almighty God who saves us? And then he says in verse 8, they collapse and fall. The, the they there um, is actually a reference to the people in the previous verse, the people who trust in chariots and horses. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And then the conclusion of it all. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The New King James New American Standard translated a bit differently. They say, save Lord, may the king answer us when we call. The, the thing that all of those versions have in common though is recognising salvation comes from God. And I'm going to choose to trust him over anything else. This reminds me of when Jesus provides loaves and fishes to the and fish to the um, five thousand. Remember, he's on one side of the Sea of Galilee. He feeds them one day, and then during the night, he and his disciples travel to the other side of Galilee, and the crowd follows them, and they end up in Capernaum. They end up in the synagogue there, and Jesus gives them the blunt truth. He says, "You're just following me because you want another meal, and who wouldn't? You know, free fish and chips is pretty good, right?" People travel to Capernaum to find it. And he says, you really need to be concerned about the bread that comes from heaven. And he gives them some difficult statements. And the crowd is so offended and upset by his statements that they decide it's not worth the, the bread and the fish. So they leave and, and Peter turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to go also? And Peter stands up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. And that's where this psalm leads us, isn't it? Where are you going to go? Chariots and horses? Where are you going to put your trust? Who are you going to put your trust in in your life? Are you going to choose to put it in the God who saves, the God who proves time and time again that he delivers his people? Are you going to put it in the creator of this universe who has the world in his hand, who has your future ready for you, who is preparing a place for you, who has promised you, just like he promised those of old, that victory belongs to him? Or are you going to put your trust in the horses and the chariots of this world? Are you going to fall or are you going to rise and stand? Just as we finish, I want to give you a challenge this week. So this is a song, Psalm 20, that they sang before they went into battle. And oftentimes we get this wrong, don't we? Oftentimes we launch into our day or our week or our trial or our battle and then afterwards we turn to God and say, actually, I need your help on this one. So this week, I want you to do it differently. I want you to launch your days by turning to God. Um, there was a, a survey done in the U.S., just two years ago, 8,000 people who identify as Christians, um, they said that of those 8,000 people, more than half of them said that they look at their phones within two minutes of waking up every morning. I think some of us here might be guilty of that as well. 73% said that they always check social media or news or emails or something before they spend time with God. You know what that is? That's rushing into the battle before singing the song of victory, before focusing your mind on who the victory belongs to. So I don't know what your prayer life is like at the moment, but just for this week, if, if you're not doing this already, why don't you wake up and kneel beside your bed and read Psalm 20 or pray to God, remind him and yourself that your allegiance belongs to him, that he is the victor, that you're not going to lose the battle. You're not going to give in to that temptation. You're not going to give in to the things that you fight against, the wiles of the devil. But you are going to stand strong on the victor's side. Just try that this week. Just every morning when you wake up, just 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, whatever it might take, and just remind yourself, before I fight the battle today, I'm going to remember that I'm on God's side. And if I stay on his side... The victory belongs to us. We're going to sing this song, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. I want you to think about the words, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand as we sing this song together.